Welcome to The Recovery Show. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with a seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During the show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of enabling. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Swetha and I'll be your host today. Joining me is co-host Spencer. How are you today, Spencer? I'm enjoying the sunshine. And uh, next to Spencer is Kelly. How are you today, Kelly? I'm great, Swetha. Thanks. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion on the topic enabling. Following a musical break, we will talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in the meetings we attend and in our lives. We will follow that with a brief news about the podcast before closing with another musical break. Um, I'd like to start today's show with a reading. Uh, This is in Hope for Today, which is um, Al-Anon approved literature, and it's on page 122 for May 1st. It says, today I know that I was the perfect enabler. My autocratic behavior deprived my husband of responsibility. I tried in vain to control him and to keep him dry. Eventually, I felt only hate and disgust towards my husband and alcohol. My life seemed totally worthless and I felt deprived of a shoulder to lean against, a safe place to cry. Then I was led to Al-Anon where I learned to do something just for me, recover. I learned that I wasn't responsible for my husband's actions so I didn't have to feel ashamed. I learned that I couldn't save him but I could save myself. This was my chance to jump off the merry-go-round I called denial before I slipped under it and was crushed. And that's what I did. And slowly, my life started to feel worthwhile again. I began taking care of myself. I practiced thinking positively using the steps and slogans. Prayer and meditation helped me become balanced and content. I cry on my sponsor's shoulder when I need comfort, and then we talk about which program tools can help me in my present situation. My husband's illness has enriched my life by leading me to Al-Anon. With the help of like-minded friends, I have been fortunate to realize my mistakes and learn from them. This, to me, is the key to real happiness. As I said, my name is Swetha, and... uh, Let's jump right into enabling. When I first came into the program, I wasn't 100% sure what the definition was for enabling. And as is my tendency, I really wanted a formula. (laughs) And uh, if I didn't have a formula, I had this black and white sort of thinking. And I thought everything I did that could in any way be nice for anyone was enabling. And um, I remember talking to my sponsor one day and saying, I was at a store today and uh, I saw a piece of cake that I thought my significant other would like, so I bought it and brought it home for him. Is that enabling? And she was like, no, <laughs> I think it was just nice. <laughs> and um, and she she gave me this really uh, a nice um, way to figure it out is she said um, enabling and codependency tend to be, uh, or the way she defined it was that she, tend, she said that it was, um, that it tends to be when someone gets between a person and the consequences of their actions rather than allowing them the dignity to uh, make their own choices and live through them. And that's that's kind of how I've been defining enabling for myself and um, I guess sorting through my own actions. How about you, Kelly? Yeah, I really liked what you said about not knowing the difference between doing something nice for someone and enabling because I really struggled with that too. I think... I think what the disease did for me is distorted my thinking so that, you know, when I thought I was being helpful, I really truly thought I was being helpful, even if it wasn't, even if it was something the person didn't ask for, or even if I did something 
after they said, no, you don't have to do that, or I don't need that, or I'm fine without that, and I still did it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really also struggled with, with defining the difference between what was just being nice Mm -hmm. and what was enabling. And I had heard the same uh, definition of enabling, of um, preventing someone from feeling the consequences of their actions. And I really had to think about that too. I mean, that wasn't something, that wasn't a, a thought or an idea that came naturally to me because, um, you know, growing up in a home with a lot of codependent thinking, there was a lot of ways in which I was prevented from feeling the consequences of my own actions or not even being allowed to take the action because it might have consequences. And so some of it I think was just that the behavior was so ingrained from day one for me that it was just really hard to separate those two ideas out. So, Spencer? You know, I have to think if, if I... I'm sure I'd heard the word before I came into the program. I'm sure that, but I don't, you know, it's not something that I thought about. I think I knew that if I was driving down to the grocery store to buy another bottle of wine, that that was maybe not the the best thing to do, but it, it seemed like it, it was a good thing to do because then she wouldn't be driving herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of part of my struggle, um, you know, we had two children, and part of my struggle was when am I doing something that just supports her disease, and when am I doing something that is, you know, protecting my kids or protecting my family? And, it, you know, it's not... not a, It's still not an easy kind of thing for me to answer. Um, I think I my decisions changed over the years and uh, and and I think I became a little more focused on things like well if she gets in a car and drives to the store and has an accident then that's on her mm-hmm. uh, but she's not taking the kids right um, but uh, um, you know but there there also are more more subtle things like you know calling work calling her work and saying, oh, she's not feeling well this morning. Oh. Um, which really, in a very real way, is getting between her and the consequences of her actions. If she doesn't have to call him up and say, I'm hungover this morning, I, I can't come in. Um, and uh, so th- there's a lot of things there that, uh, that I struggled with um, and that I didn't realize I was doing. I just thought I was being helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's part of my disease, part of my sickness that was, I thought I was being helpful. And in the long run, I really wasn't being helpful because um, I was uh, in, uh, permitting the disease to continue um, without consequences. And so uh, when you don't have consequences or when your consequences are less, then you know, you're less motivated to make changes. Yeah. Um, and also then you know, I kind of felt, like, well, I, I had resentment. Like, you know, I, oh, man, I got to get in the car and drive to the store and buy the stuff that I don't want her to be drinking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was not good for me either. But, you know, I did struggle with it. And, and uh, 
I I really liked kind of what you were mentioning, Kelly, and I really relate to that, that you grew up in a household where there was so much codependency. And I grew up in a similar sort of household. So I didn't even think about it as being codependency or enabling. I just thought doing these things, preventing people from feeling the consequences of their own actions is love and affection. That's mm-hmm. how you express love and affection. And if you didn't do these things, it meant you didn't care. And if other people didn't do these things for you, it meant you, they didn't care. And um, so I did these things a lot um, growing up in in my family, in my relationships. I remember one time um, I had a, a, a boyfriend. I think I might have said this on the podcast before, but I had a boyfriend who mm. hated his job. <laughs> and um, He was always miserable and drinking a lot. And I thought, oh, I can, uh, this is an easy fix. All he needs to do is fix his resume and send it out. And he didn't want to. So I wrote his resume up from scratch and sent it out and applied to the jobs <laughs> for him. And, um, and then all he had to do was answer the phone and go to interviews, uh, which he would do it only half the time and most of those times he would get mad at me because I didn't apply to the right jobs for him because that's not <laughs> the jobs he wanted but he didn't want to participate he was like I just, I'm not in the mood to, to do this right now and I was like oh it's okay I'll do this for you and I thought that was love I was like oh I'm helping him out and being nice but um I resented the heck out of him for it and that's another way I kind of can see when I'm enabling someone is um when I'm just doing something nice I'm just doing it not to fix something for them or to make them happy or anything like that. I'm just doing it because I, I want to do it. I just wanted to, I saw a piece of cake that my boyfriend would like and I bought it for him and I wasn't thinking, that bastard, that bastard likes chocolate cake and I have to bring it to him now. Um, I just I just did. But when I'm doing something to enable people, um, I often find myself kind of resenting them for it because it's not something that I really in my heart of hearts want to do. It's something that I think will manipulate the situation in a way. Um, did you, do you guys have any experiences like that? Well, I was, I was just going to say, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think enabling is really, um, closely tied to the idea of trying to control the outcome of a situation. Mm -hmm. Um, that as you mentioned, when you're just doing something nice, it really is just uh, an altruistic gesture. You know, it's just something out of the goodness of your heart that you want to do that you think someone might appreciate or, or, you know, like when you, um, like I got a Valentine the other day in the mail from one of my friends. I've known her since kindergarten. And, you know, I didn't ask her to send it. Um, I haven't talked to her in a while. So it was clear that she was just thinking about me and she just sent it. You know, like mm-hmm. that to me is a gesture of just being nice. Mm-hmm. But uh, but like you said, when, um, when it's not that situation, I'm more than likely trying to control the outcome. You know, if I do this for them, then they should react this way yeah. or then I should get this in return mm-hmm. or, you know, something to that effect. And um, kind of tied to that, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, Spencer, as you were talking, I picked up on this idea of enabling being related to the idea of self-care, um, both in terms of the enabler and the enablee. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> Um, in the sense that when I'm, when I'm doing an enabling behavior and something that I'm not allowing them to have consequences of, I also don't allow that person to take responsibility for themselves or their own self care. Um, you know, like, yeah, that's true. And, and then it also leads to me not taking care of my own self care because I'm so worried about 
putting all the pieces into place for the other person that I forget to do the things that I need to do for me to keep me sane. So I, I, I don't know if the, if you were going that direction, but that's kind of what I heard, Spencer. No, it's that I, I hadn't really been thinking about that, but that's a good point that uh, uh, we, you know, we talk, we talk sometimes in meetings, we talk about giving our, our alcoholic, our addict, the dignity um, of finding their own path. And, mm-hmm. and when, at least, you know, many kinds of enabling behavior, we're, we're taking that dignity away from them. We're saying, I know better than you. Um, I'm, I'm going to do the thing that, that I know needs to be done. Um, and which may or may not actually be the right thing. Uh, and as one of you was talking, I was thinking about actually a time when, um, my wife, uh, basically said to me, I'm going to stop enabling this behavior of yours. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, this is this. It's kind of a funny story because I, I can't say this is a behavior I did on purpose. But during, uh, I don't remember. It might have been before we had kids. Um, I had this sort of habit of uh, accidentally cutting my fingers with knives and stuff. Um, just you know, I was like cutting up vegetables and not paying attention and whack, you know, and then <laughs> and you know, got nice sharp knives. And so then I would have to go to the ER or maybe get a couple stitches or something. And, and, uh, um, and finally one day, and I think this time I had managed to, um, slice myself with a piece of glass. I was like washing off this piece of window pane and, and it slipped and broken and, and made a nice gash in the side of my thumb. And, and I said, Hey, I need a ride to the emergency room. And she said, okay, but next time you're calling a cab. Whoa. Said, I'm done. T- I'm done driving into the emergency room. Wow. And I never had to go to the emergency room to get stitches for a cut on my fingers again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so I have to ask myself, you know, <laughs> um, I really don't think that I was accidentally cutting myself because I knew that then I would get a ride to the emergency room because, you know, it's not really a place you want to be, right? And, and stitches in your finger is not something you want to experience. But on the other hand, like the realization that I was going to have to be responsible for the, all of the consequences the next time it happened, not just like the pain and the bleeding and all that, mm-hmm. um, obviously made some kind of difference in my behavior um, because I, I got more careful or what? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's a different, it's a different kind of enabling than we think of when we're, you know, sitting here in Al-Anon and we're talking about enabling, which has to do with like covering up or, um, you know, supplying uh (laughs) and uh um, so yeah Uh, i don't know if you guys have have more thoughts if not i want to play a voicemail we got from a listener yeah yeah hi this is mark from recoveredcast.com and i'm calling regarding the topic this week of enabling and i'd like to get feedback your comments your perspective on how to determine where our parental responsibilities end and where enabling or codependent behavior begins. Thanks. Love the show. Thank you, Mark, for that call. Um, and actually, just want to mention this. Mark discovered a new way to, to send us feedback. Um, he did not call the, the voicemail number. What he did was he recorded a voice memo on his iPhone and then emailed it to us. Um, and as you can hear, we get pretty good audio quality that way. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, there's Thanks, another Mark. way you can... You can uh, <laughs> Join our conversation. And uh, so I, I, I want to respond to that by uh, recounting um, an experience of mine. 
with uh, with one of my children. Um, my son was at college, um, two thousand miles away, and he experienced essentially experienced a mental breakdown. Um, said some things to a friend that could be, uh, if you took them straight, they were threats. Um, I. I think he did not mean them that way, but that's that's the way the other person took them, and very appropriately so. Um, and uh, so he ended up uh, suspended from school and in a mental institution uh, in the lockdown ward. And they really didn't want to let him out without somebody there to receive him when he came out, so I flew down um, after um, crying and, and talking to my sponsor and some other people in the program, like, I don't know what to do. You know, if he was drinking, I'd know how to handle this, but I don't know how to handle this. But it turns out I did know how to handle it. Um, and I and I got down there, and, um, you know, he came out, um, and he couldn't go back on campus. He had to go through a hearing to determine whether they would let him back on campus, whether they considered him to be safe. Uh, so, you know, I had a hotel room. I had a car. Uh, and But he was 20 years old. He was an adult. And so what I was there for was to provide the support that he could not provide for himself. You know, he couldn't, he didn't have a place to live. He didn't have food. He didn't have transportation. He was a student. You know, he walked everywhere on campus, right? Um, and all of a sudden he wasn't on campus. He was uh, barred from his dorm room. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and so I was able to provide that for him while he dealt with the consequences of his action while he went through the interview process with the, the student counselor while he um, was delivered a restraining order by his ex-girlfriend while he found a new place to live off campus because since he had a no-contact restraining order, he couldn't really be living in the same dorm um, with, the, with the person to whom he'd made the threat. And that week that I was down there, really marked a, a change in the way that we related to each other. Um, and I feel like I was not enabling him. You know, I was, I was providing support. I was doing for him things he could not do for himself and, and giving him the space to, to do the things he could do to deal with the consequences of what he had done. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that directly answers your question, Mark. Um, it, and I don't think I can answer your question directly uh, because I found in that experience, I found a place where I was able to, to make a boundary between what would have been enabling uh, and what was not. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think, and, and I, you know, I know people whose, um, you know, their minor children are in trouble with drugs or alcohol or suicidal um, and, you know, there's a different balance there because, you know, they're, you're legally, still legally responsible for them, even if they don't think you should be. <laughs> um, and, uh, man, I had a, I've, I actually found a reading recently and I, and I should have pulled it out that, um, or maybe it was in a meeting where, where, you know, somebody who was talking about their, their child and saying, you know, I can, I can tell him, I can ground him, I can you know, give him consequences. But in the end, if he doesn't like him, he's just going to walk out the door. Hmm. And, uh, and you know, that's sort of the bottom line there. I mean, and that 
I guess as parents, that's one of the, the lines we have to draw. And if we're willing to draw a line that might cause our, our child to walk out the door. And, you know, when, when my kids were younger and, and one of them was using drugs and we did not like that fact, um, we were also not ready to say, you can't live in this house. And so that, that sort of limited the kind of responses we could make. Um, we could say, we want you to go to counseling. We could say, um, we do not approve. We could say, we want you to be home. But, you know, this guy would get up after we were in bed and go out. And I, I'm sorry, I can't be awake 24 hours a day and physically bar the door when, when my kid wants to go out the, outside. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was tough. It was tough because we really wanted him to not be doing what he was doing. But we also recognized that we really didn't have within the boundaries that we were willing to set. Mm -hmm. We did not have that control. You know, I know people who have told their kids, if you're going to do that, you can't live with me. Um, I didn't, I guess I didn't have that courage. I don't know. You guys thoughts on this? Kelly? Well, I don't have kids as you know. Um, but I have seen this, um, or I guess a, a similar type of situation happening in some of my extended family. I have a cousin. She's about 10 years younger than me. Um, so I, you know, I kind of see her slightly in a parental kind of role just cause I've, you know, I've watched her grow up and, um, and she has struggled with drugs and alcohol. And what I've noticed in her family dynamic is that her parents will set, um, I'm going to use the term boundary for lack of a better word, but they will make a condition, I guess, on her, on, yeah, boundary did not seem right. Um, they'll make a condition on her living at home. And as soon as she breaks the condition, they make her move out. But then the second she gets into trouble after she's moved out, whether it's because she lost her job and can't pay her bill or she got picked up by the cops or whatever, she's always allowed to come back home. And, and she'll just continue, then she just picks up where she left off. So she'll keep doing the behavior that was previously not allowed in the home until they get fed up and then she leaves again and, you know, it just keeps going back and forth. And so I think it's important, Spencer, what you mentioned about the boundaries that you're willing to set and also being able to stick to them. You know, if, if you feel one way about a certain thing or that, or that you feel like it's just not okay in your home, you have to be prepared for the consequences that you're going to feel of that too. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I, I guess what I'm thinking about the situation with my cousin is that I don't really think she's learning anything from this experience other than that every time she gets in trouble, she can come back home. No matter how, you know, like no matter how badly she's messed up or no matter what rules she's broken or what contingencies she didn't follow, she always has a place back there. And what I've seen in her life from, as a result of that is sort of this um, result of enabling, you know, that she... She knows where to go to get what she wants when she needs it. And then when she doesn't need it anymore, she could care less about you, you know? So it's, I, I don't know, but I, I feel for Mark because um, I can't imagine, and, and you, Spencer, I can't imagine what it's like to have to set these kinds of boundaries with 
your own flesh and blood. I think we've talked about this in previous episodes where setting boundaries with people that you're just in a relationship with is one thing because it's just easier to walk away if things aren't working out. But, you know, for a lot of people, you just can't walk away from your kids. So right. it's it seems like a really tough, fine line. Yeah. I I wish I had something. I could. I I also don't have kids. I I, I think I mentioned recently in a meeting the closest thing I have is my dog. <laughs> and um, but I I really I really liked what you were saying, Spencer, about about boundaries and not that you're necessarily setting rules or trying to make decisions. At least this is what I heard is that you weren't trying to make decisions for your children. You weren't trying to tell them what to do so much as looking inward or focusing inward and deciding, you know, these are the things that I need for my serenity. I need to know that my son is at home safe or will have a place to go. And that's just, that's just your, that's what you need for your serenity. And it's, I don't, uh, I think that takes a lot of courage to, to realize what, you know, what it is that you need and realize your own um, limitations and what's important to you. Uh, rather than saying this is what has to happen, I don't know if this is what I want. I don't know if this is what I need. Um, I mean, I, I don't have any. Like I said, I don't have any children. But with my sister, a lot of times when when she was first in college, um, she would a lot of times uh, wait till last. She would take really uh, stressful, time consuming, set up herself in really stressful, time consuming classes and just crowd them all into one semester and she would be bogged down with work and then last minute she'd be like oh my gosh I have this homework assignment due I need some help and um usually my father and I would jump to the rescue because god forbid my sister get a b on anything and you know (laughs) that was serious business (laughs) um and uh after I uh after a while I realized that I resented the heck out of this was even before the program, but I realized I resented the heck out of my sister for it because it would, A, it would usually be like the night before, B, it would be um, that she wanted like someone to do portions of her homework rather than helping her out with it or something. Mm-hmm. And so at some point I just set that own boundary, my own boundary there just because I couldn't stay up, you know, the whole night, the night before doing someone else's homework. I was in school finishing up my master's degree myself and didn't have time for it. Um and that, but that didn't mean that I wasn't willing to help or support her. I just wasn't willing to enable her. And so the way that I ended up helping or supporting is saying, "Hey, I can't stay up tonight. I haven't. I, I, you know, I need the sleep. I just won't be able to do it. If you need help, let me know a week in advance, and I'm more than happy to sit with you and go over the homework. And if you have questions about something, these are the things I'm willing to do. Mm. And um, and I was there for emotional support. Like when she did come home with a B, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, that's it. You, you're you worthless to me. It's over. <laughs> a B, this is unacceptable. I disown you. I, you know, I just be like, okay, well, we'll do better next time. Well, you know, I'll help uh, if you need any help tutoring or anything like that. But I set my own rules and said, you know, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm capable of doing. And this is when I'm capable of doing it. Um, and I, I don't know where that, I'm going to attribute that to a, pre-recovery, higher power mo- moment, but um, that's that's kind of how it was for me with family, even though I, like I said, I don't know how it would be different. I think it would be much different with kids. So um, when you're talking about, you know, wanting to control outcomes, and maybe one of the reasons we, we do this is we want to have some control over outcomes, mm-hmm. and I, I, but I've also, at least in my thinking as we're talking and as I'm uh, relating, 
maybe my personal experience, I think about, you know, then there's this sort of anti-motivation or no, it's motivation. Like if I stop enabling and the person really feels the consequences, maybe they'll change the behavior. <laughs> and so, oh. um, so it's, you know, <laughs> there's a danger there, I guess there's a danger there of, of having an expectation that if I don't enable that something's going to change. So kind of uh, trying to manipulate in another way. Manipulating in another way, okay. exactly. Uh, I did think of another example of, of enabling outside of a you know drug and alcohol context that, that it happened in my family, happened to me. Um, when, so when my kids were um, in middle school, they went to a, a school that did not have public transportation, and we had to drive them there every day. So I had to get up, I had to get them up, I had to get them in the car, you know, drive to school so they'd be there on time. And obviously I was very much in control of that and there was nothing they could do except make it, you know, make it slower. Uh, <laughs> they, they really couldn't do anything to get us there any faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got into this habit that I was in control of what happened in the morning and I was in control of, and I was responsible for getting them to school on time. So then they went to high school where they could get themselves there. My, my son could walk my daughter uh, rode her bike or took the bus as she went to a different high school. And I continued to make sure they were up mm-hmm. in time to get out of the house in time to get to school. And if they didn't get up in time, then I would drive them. Oh. Okay. And, you know, I was in recovery at that point, but I really was not seeing this as enabling behavior, mm-hmm. which it was. Mm-hmm. It really was. It was enabling them to continue to sleep late in the morning and not be responsible for getting up in time to get themselves to school. And it, you know, we did manage to let go of the homework thing, mm-hmm. like pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And I think in, when they got to high school, we're like, you guys are responsible for doing your homework. And they felt the consequences of not getting their homework done. And they both kind of, you know, fixed that behavior. But this getting up in the morning thing, this was hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, as a parent, I didn't want them to be late for school because then, you know, they would miss school. They would get demerits, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And it took until senior year in high school for me to be able to say, well, this particularity to my son because he was the one who had the regular schedule. My daughter was at this alternative school and and senior year she had this totally wacko schedule that she didn't need to be there until 10 some days, noon other days. Um, she had one class that went into the evening. You know, it was crazy. But uh, more like college, really. Mm. So it was very clear with her that I was going to be off to work well before she needed to get up in the morning. So I could not be responsible for getting her up. But with my son, um, I had to really make myself not wake him up make myself you know not say hey uh it's you know 7 30 you're gonna be late for school if you don't leave the house right now um and i managed to do that for about three months and then he came to me and he said can you help me get up in the morning i'm getting too many detentions for being late Okay, so he had started to feel the consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was trying to get himself up and he was not succeeding. And I thought about it because I had, you know, tried to set this boundary to stop enabling him, his, his not getting to school on time behavior. And I said, I will come wake you up once. What time do you want me to do that? So I think he said like 7.15. I said, okay, I'll come wake you up at 7.15, but after that, 
you know, you got to get up and get going. I'm, I'm not going to come back and make sure you're out of bed. I'm not going to make sure you get out the door on time because I'm going to be upstairs taking my shower. Okay. And that seemed to work. I think, I think he was more reliably to school on time. I've, uh, he had asked for help. I provided the help he asked for. Um, so I didn't feel like I was pushing myself on him. I didn't feel like I was, um, enabling him, uh, in that, it, you know, I mean, I, that's where I set that boundary. And, uh, um, you know, it sort of felt much healthier from both sides, I think, um, once we finally uh, figured out how to do that, um, which sort of, um, I, we got a question here that I don't think we've really talked about, which is, um, what are some healthy ways to be supportive? Without, well, I guess I've talked about that, but, um, uh, to a little bit, what are healthy ways to be supportive without enabling? Kelly? Yeah, I th- I, well, I think it's important that you brought that up, Spencer, because we spend so much time talking about how bad enabling is <laughs> that we need to give the listeners some hope as far as what <laughs> what they can do instead of enabling. Um, so I guess, I mean, kind of what you talked about, Spencer, I mean, um, to to for me, the best way that I can be there for... Um, you know, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but when I'm trying to be there for my significant other in a way that I want to be helpful, but I don't want to get in the way, um, I, 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 I'm sure to let him know that if he would like my help to please ask me for help, um, because, you know, what the, the habit that I'm trying to break and we touched on it a little bit earlier is just acting without asking people's permission, whether they want it or not. And so if I let him know that ahead of time, um, then, uh, you know, I keep my nose clean and I allow him the dignity of, you know, trying to wake up for school in time before. (laughs) And and, and then if it doesn't work, then he knows, okay, you know, I can, I can ask for help. So, so I think, um, that's part of it for me. Um, I also think that, for me personally, I don't know if this is necessarily helpful to my alcoholic, but um, that I have to uh, use the concept of letting go, that I have to let go of my preconceived ideas about how things should be done and the time frame they sh- should be done within and um, just the general outcome because, you know, for me it's so easy to get caught up in my head about you know, planning everything out in my vision for how things should go. And rarely does everyone else have the same vision that I do. So I have to be okay with um, something. I don't know why this keeps popping into my head, but it's popped in my head a couple times as we've been talking. I remember complaining to my sponsor once about how my husband would never do the dishes. He would say that if you cook, I'll do the dishes. And so I would cook and then we would get ready to go to bed and I would still see this kitchen full of dishes. And I would think, what the heck? Like he said he was (laughs) going to do this. Like, why are they not done? And so then I would end up doing them and then I would be resentful because he didn't do the dishes and I had to do them. And what my sponsor had explained to me was that if, if I'm going to make an agreement with someone like that, that I have to let go of any preconceptions of when it's going to happen, 
you know, and, and I think what she was trying to explain to me is that maybe his thought was, I don't want to do the dishes tonight. I will do them in the morning, even if it means the stuff is like gunky and crusted on and impossible to get off in his mind. That's just how he wanted to do it. But I would get frustrated and resentful and irritated and huffy (laughs) and do them because I thought they needed to be done at night. And so for me, part of enabling is about letting go too. Like I just need to get, get out of that space. Um, I think I mentioned this before when I was talking about my sister, but uh, a lot of, a lot of trying to be supportive without enabling is realizing what I need to take care of myself and to uh, feel serene and feel okay with everything. Um, so because uh, I, I can't remember, I, I, want to say my sponsor said this because I just automatically think, oh, something wise. It couldn't have come from me. <laughs> um, but uh, Keep um, coming back. <laughs> I am Kelly. <laughs> but uh, I think um, uh, one of the things that I heard either in the rooms or from my sponsor was um, that you can't give what you don't have. And if you aren't serene and if you aren't taking care of yourself, you can't really be taking care of anyone else. And... Um, so for me, a lot of it is thinking, if someone asks me for help, I in the past I used to think, oh my gosh, someone is asking me for help. I absolutely have to say yes. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, no matter what they were asking for. And um, a, lot of, a lot of being supportive without enabling for me is listening to someone say, I need your help, and then thinking, okay, in what ways can I help them that they're asking me for? For example, with my sister, you know, she asked me for help. I didn't have to say, yes, I will do your homework for you, but I was comfortable with saying, yeah, I can help you if you have questions. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's really helpful for me to be supportive in that way. Because in the end, if, I'm, if I end up presenting the person over things that I, I consciously made the choice to do, mm-hmm. then that's, that's not helpful for me. It's not helpful for our relationship and definitely not helpful for them. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of being supportive for me is figuring out my own boundaries and, and yeah, definitely letting go after that. I mean, if they ask me for my help and these are the ways that I can help them and they get resentful about it, that's not my hula hoop. That's not um, something that I need to fix, which is something I used to be scared of in the past, that if someone asked me for my help and I said no, that they'd hate me forever and I'd, I'd die alone, mm-hmm. you know, and um, that's just not the case. It's okay to say no, and that's something that I needed to learn. Um, yeah, that's, so that's, I just, I just figure out what I'm okay with and I'm sort of in those ways and let go of the rest, whether or not they want my help, whether or not they listen to what I've said and how they handle whatever it is that I've, I'm willing to give. Hmm. Spencer? Right. So I'm thinking about, um, you know, somebody comes to me, one of my sponsor, sponsors maybe comes to me and says, is this behavior enabling? Um, and you know, so the first question that, that I might ask um, is, well, are you getting between them and the consequences of some action that they, that they've, or, or some choice they've made? And so that's, that's question number one. And then um, the other questions are, you know, what's your motivation? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why do you want to do this? Are you doing this because you want to save them pain? Are you doing this because you want to save yourself pain? Are you doing this because it's almost always about pain, right? Um, <laughs> or fear. Uh, or fear, right. Uh, are you doing this to reduce some fear of your own um, about, you know, potential outcomes about, um, and, 
And when we start looking at our own motivation, uh, we get a much better picture of whether it's something that's inside our hula hoop or something that's outside our hula hoop. Um, And then we can start to think about where appropriate boundaries are. Mm -hmm. And in this case, when I'm looking at potentially enabling behavior, it's almost always a boundary on my own behavior, Mm -hmm. not a boundary on somebody else's behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm trying to set up a boundary around somebody else's behavior. Like, um, you know, if I make sure my son gets up in the morning, then he'll be to school on time and he won't get detention, Um, which totally ignores the fact that once he's out the door, it's really his choice about when he gets to school. Um, you know, even if I drive him there and drop him off, he might decide to go, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he ever did, but, you know, go smoke out in the in the uh, football field or something instead of going <laughs> I have a GPS school. tracking device in my dog, Spencer. Uh, just just yeah, saying. Just saying. No, so, you know, <laughs> wow. Talk about... I am not putting GPS tracking devices. I mean, even if my kids were young enough, I'm not putting GPS tracking devices. And and I am Might not be a having legal issue. <laughs> I am not having microchips inserted under their skin so they can. Alanon proof of Alanon no. working, guys. <laughs> uh, but you know, I think there are people who would. There are yeah. people who do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know where you are. I can look where your phone is. Okay, and I know you have your phone with you because you never leave it behind, right? right. Whatever. Um, so yeah, I got a little distracted there from from where I was going. This, but that's that's probably okay. But you know, so why why do I want my son to be to school in the morning? Um, well, I don't want him to have the pain of mm-hmm. of being late to having to deal with the consequences. Okay, so that's not about me. That's about him. That's about me trying to control his environment um, and to some extent control his behavior. And so um, this is not something that I should do unless. He asked me to. And that's the other question is, is this something the, that, that you know, the other person has asked you for? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the other person's going to ask you for things that, that are enabling. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, could you drive to the store and get me another bottle of wine? I'm not drunk enough yet. Um, I mean, that's the obvious one. That's sort of the, 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 the prototypical, like, you can't deny it's enabling behavior. Um, although... Um, and I, I, I think I told this story on, on an earlier podcast. I mean, I had to modify that behavior once when we were traveling um, because uh, the consequences of sort of not getting my loved one's alcohol level up to the level it needed to be were um, pretty severe on us the next day. And, uh, and I realized that, okay, I, I really can't do the same thing here that I can do at home because the environment's different um, and the... The balance of control in in the in in that situation was very different than the balance of control was at home, mm. and and what I was trying to do there was to force my notions of proper behavior on my loved one rather than, um, you know, I wasn't trying to spare pain. I was trying to say, oh, well, you know, you're not going to drink because there's nothing to drink. Ha ha ha. <laughs> um, and uh, and so that was a different kind of behavior. But <laughs> uh, and and so it it. I guess in that case, you know, that that boundary had to be situational. It had to be. Um, And I hadn't realized that. Spencer, you touched on something that made me think about another healthy way to be supportive without enabling, um, and that is faith. That when you were talking about your son and getting to school, you know, there's a certain amount of faith required there Mm -hmm. that once he leaves the door you kind of have to have some faith that he's going to get himself there. You know, he could choose not to, or he could choose to 
get there, but mm-hmm. but there is some faith required too in I know that that's hard for a lot of people who are involved in um, addictive relationships because our trust has been broken so many times. But um, but I, I do think also for me it was important to break the cycle of enabling behavior that I had to have some faith that if I didn't do whatever it was I thought they wouldn't do, um, that they would actually get around to doing it. And if they didn't, maybe it wasn't that important. Very true, yes. You know, because my priorities are not your priorities. Mm-hmm. My priorities are not my kids' priorities. Right. And what I think is really important for them, they might not. Right. And 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 I can I can tell them all I want, like, oh well, you know, when you're grown up you're gonna wish you had done this. They don't care. Right. <laughs> they won't care until they're grown up. Oh, I still don't care. <laughs> I hear that from my parents all the time. Don't hold your breath, Spencer. <laughs> I'm not. You see, I got program here, okay? He's letting go. Good. Um, uh, so I, we'd like to wrap up today's discussion with a reminder, and this is in the in Hope for Today, same, same page, same date, 122 May 1st. And the reminder for today is um, get off his back, get out of his way, get onto yourself, get to meetings, and give him to God. And that's from Forum Favorites, Volume 4, page 142. Um, after a short break, we'll be back with our lives in recovery, where we will talk about the our meetings and what's happening in our lives. So uh, we got a, a musical selection coming up here. This is The Candyman. It's sung by Sammy Davis Jr. It's from the um, Willy Wonka movie. And, um, you know, we had a couple of interpretations here. Uh, you know, one is it's it's got this lyric about... Uh, you know who can make the sun? Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, cover it with chocolate, and a miracle or two? The Candyman can, and to me, that sort of is the the essence of enabling behavior that that we want to make everything wonderful for our loved ones, and that's why we. That's one of the at least one of the reasons we do it. Uh, there is another interpretation. Um, I think uh, uh, probably most of us have equated the Candyman with a drug dealer, and you know when I was in the middle of my enabling behavior with my alcoholic, I was basically pushing her drug on her. Mm-hmm. So here's the song. Shit. 
In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. Spencer? Wow, okay. Um, so I was trying to remember my Sunday night meeting, mm-hmm. and obviously it didn't make a lot of impression on me because I really can't remember what we talked about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I did an episode of uh, the Recovered Podcast with, uh, with Mark on Monday, and uh, we talked about um, different kinds of meetings. It was kind of an inter- interesting discussion. Um, different kinds of meetings in terms of like table meetings, speaker meetings, meetings with a big round circle. Uh, also talked about, um, you know, maybe meetings at recovery centers, uh, what that was like. And, or, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so it was an interest, interesting discussion. And uh, if you want to hop over to recoveredcast.com, you can, you can listen to that. And um, Wednesday night meeting, we talked about step two, which, you know, it's always good to hear people people's different uh, insights on the steps. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the, the woman who gave the lead said she was really glad that she was chosen to talk about step two because it's, it's her favorite step. Mm-hmm. And, and often when she does a lead, she talks about step two anyway. And so here she was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was some good sharing. Mm-hmm. Kelly? I was also at that meeting and on step two, and the lead was great. It, it was, again, for me, it was one of those people that I've kind of, been on a journey with and so i've seen her change a lot throughout the years and uh for me what was most noticeable is the level of confidence she had when she spoke about the topic um you know that you could tell that she really believed what she was saying it wasn't just regurgitated information from the book but she you know she really felt passionately about it and um and i think it it helped it resonate so much more with all of the people that were there at the meeting Mm -hmm. um i also I think I've mentioned on a previous episodes that I am participating in a prayer and meditation group, which is, uh, it's all people from the program, but it's not program based. It's just, um, uh, several of us get together and bring ideas to the table about how to help each other improve our prayer and meditation practices. And so we had talked about, um, this past week, some techniques to help with meditation. And I found it really interesting because there was a lot of contradictory ideas that I, um, that I didn't realize, you know, one of which was this idea of, uh, you know, when you, that it seems very, um, intuitive to sit down in an attempt to meditate and force your mind to clear itself. And the way that the instructor of this particular course we listened to, the way he explained it was that it's like when you um, can't go to sleep and you're laying in bed and you're thinking about how you can't sleep and actually what that does is perpetuates the idea that you can't sleep because all you can think about is not sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so his point was the same with meditation, that when when you're forcing your mind to clear, all you're going to be able to think about is how not clear your mind is (laughs) and so and so then we did a 10 minutes of just a group silent meditation and it was really a different experience to sit and just you know kind of accept the thoughts as they came through my head and acknowledge them instead of trying to force them away um so there was a lot there were a lot of different techniques that we talked about and it was really helpful um, I was at the Wednesday meeting also, and um, I really liked her her talk on step two. It really helped me out a lot with, um, or really spoke to a lot with to the situation I'm going through um, in my personal life, where I'm trying to let go and let God in a situation 
where I really, really want to control everything, which actually it's like every situation ever, but this <laughs> one especially. <laughs> um, and um, also this, a lot of things I've been doing this week for recovery is um, reading, um, reading passages in Courage to Change and Hope for Today and, uh, and how Al-Anon works, reading a lot of, um, of literature and praying a lot. It's been helping me a lot when I start feeling that, um, that craving to control, which is, by the way, a phrase I heard on the Recovered Cast podcast, and it's a really good one. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, somebody said that, didn't he? I, I wonder who, Spencer. <laughs> but uh, it was. I mean, it's, I really re- related to that phrase, and I can, I'm really glad that I'm at a place in my recovery where I can recognize that craving to control rather than just blindly submitting to it. Mm. And at those moments, I've been praying a lot, even if it's just to say, thy will not mine be done, Um, which sometimes I say that through gritted teeth. Um, (laughs) But even the act of saying it, even the act of consciously deciding to say this helps me let go and let God, even if at the moment I really don't want to. Um, And that's helped me a lot with my recovery this week. Um, And our topic next week will be detachment. We welcome your thoughts. Uh, You can join the conversation. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your experience or questions about detachment. Um, Spencer, how can people send us feedback? Well, um, you can do like Mark did and and record a voicemail and email it to feedback (laughs) at therecoveryshow.com. Or you can can call our voicemail number, which is 734-707-707. Eight seven nine five. Uh, you know, put the podcast on pause if you've got a question or comment. You could call right now uh, and join our conversation at seven three four seven zero seven eight seven nine five. Or, as I mentioned, you can send email to feedback at the recovery show dot com, uh, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So, uh, you know, give us a call, uh, Kelly. Where can our listeners find out more about the recovery show? Well, we have a website, which is therecoveryshow.com, and the website has all the information about the show, including notes from each episode. It has a blog with daily meditations, which are really great, by the way, links to the music we play, and a page to which we periodically post recordings of Al-Anon Open Talk speakers. And we also have a few links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. Another way that you can contribute to the content of the podcast and the website is to leave comments on the show notes or just on the blog. And if you head over to therecoveryshow.com, you can enter the conversation there. And we did have a comment on the on the website this week. Uh, Erica commented uh, on one of the meditations. She said, I absolutely love these meditations. There is never not a time when I need to be reminded that, to have hope. I think that was on um, the one I posted yesterday about hope. And uh, we have a little bit of news um, on the website. Uh, We've put up a page about uh, how to listen. Uh, I noticed that we were getting basically no downloads from Android phones, and I thought maybe that's because nobody knows how to actually subscribe to a podcast. Uh, All the people that I know that have Android phones are like, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) So um, uh, Swaith and I sat down over lunch one day and, and... took her new phone and figured out how to subscribe to the podcast on it. And we took some screenshots. And so we've got this whole little step-by-step thing about how to Mm -hmm. subscribe on, on, on her phone. Uh, Hopefully it applies to yours as well. And also um, just, there's a little paragraph about, you know, using iTunes or just listening right on your computer. So if you um, weren't sure how maybe to subscribe, head on over there and see if that's helpful. If it's not helpful, um, you know, also let us know and and we can try to improve it.
We're going to close the show with a song by Coldplay that's called Fix You. And I consider this really the Al-Anon anthem. (laughs) When you try your best but you don't succeed When you get what you want but not what you need When you feel so tired but you can't sleep Stuck in Streaming down your face When you lose something you can't replace When you love someone but it goes to waste Could it be for listening and please keep coming back whatever your problems are there are those among us who have had them too if we did not talk about a problem you are facing today feel free to contact us so that we can talk about it in a future episode may understanding love and peace grow in you one day at a time Hi.